Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks very much for tuning in. We're speaking here on Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Yes, it's August. Welcome to August and hopefully everyone is enjoying the the nicer August weather we've had so far compared to uh, the difficult July we just experienced and it's been uh, uh, the end of July and into August here, much, much nicer, more tolerable. And thanks for tuning in here for the show. Uh, Speaking of speaking of heat, uh, there's no hotter topic uh, than housing, of course, in New York and the ongoing challenges around housing that we've talked about so much here on the show over the last many months and even years uh, with a variety of great guests. And I have what promises to be another really interesting conversation for you here on this episode of the show. My guest today is New York City Council Member Rafael Salamanca Jr., a Bronx Democrat who is chair of the City Council's powerful and important land use committee. That committee is responsible for voting through or not after extensive vetting uh, proposed changes to the city's land use rules, namely zoning changes or rezonings where zoning rules are changed to allow, in many cases, new types of development or larger development or different kind of development that would be allowed under existing rules. Those would be what are referred to as as of right development if somebody can do something with a piece of land without seeking approval from the city council and the lengthy process that the council comes in at the end of to vote on. The property owner has certain rights under the city's zoning rules. And if they want to change that, or if the New York City government, the mayoral administration in most cases, wants to pursue a zoning change, that would also come through the city council, including the land use committee. Uh, A variety of different types of proposals come through the city council and its land use committee. It's part of that long and complicated uniform land use review procedure, otherwise known as ULERP. That process also includes review by community boards and borough presidents who can offer non-binding advisory opinions and the city planning commission, which can then send a proposal to the city council where in part it must come through that land use committee. So simply put, the city council's land use committee chair, which has been council member Salamanca since January 2018. So he's a real veteran in that role here. The chair of the land use committee has a very important role and voice in many major and minor land use decisions in the city. I don't know if there's minor land use decisions in New York City, actually. They're all pretty major, but some bigger than others. Uh, And the person in that chair can have a significant impact on which development projects are approved and their details, the city's overall approach to things like housing and economic development and growth, and much more. Councilmember Salamanca has been the city council member for the 17th district, representing parts of the South Bronx, uh, since winning a special election in 2016. His district includes parts or all of Bronx neighborhoods, including Concourse Village, Cortona Park East, East Tremont, Hunts Point, Longwood, Melrose, Morrisania, Port Morris, West Farms, North Brother Island, South Brother Island, and I think I got them all from the council website. Um, The 17th council district is home like other council districts after the recent redistricting based on the census of 2020. It's home to roughly 175,000 New Yorkers. According to those 2020 census estimates, the district is 65% Hispanic, 29% Black, 2% White, and 1% Asian. Councilmember Salamanca is the son of Puerto Rican immigrants. He grew up in the Bronx, Before being elected to the city council in that 2016 election, he was district manager for Bronx Community Board 2 for nearly six years. So he's got a lot of experience with the nitty gritty of municipal government and local communities. So my conversation on things related to housing, land use, economic development, and we'll touch on some other things with city council member Rafael Salamanca in just one moment. Very briefly, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, Find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts. I've had some really good conversations. We've been going a little slower here in the summer, uh, but two really good summer conversations so far on the podcast from July with New York City Public Advocate Jamani Williams 
And then I had on the co-chairs of the city council progressive caucus, council members Lincoln Ressler and Shahana Hanif to talk about how the progressive caucus has been changing and evolving under their leadership, the new city budget, how the progressive caucus is trying to act as a counterweight to Mayor Adams and much more. So find those two conversations after you listen to this one uh, at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts. And we also had some great conversations in June, in case you missed those. And of course, in prior weeks and months, too. So check them all out when you get a chance. Okay. New York City Council Member Rafael Salamanca, a Bronx Democrat, chair of the Council's Land Use Committee. Thank you for joining me. How are you today? Uh, thank you, uh, Ben, for uh, having me. Um, I'm, I'm well. Thank you. Good, good. So before we get into uh, lots of things related to uh, chairing the Land Use Committee and your views on housing and economic development and much more, uh, let's just touch on the city budget, which is still relatively new, only a month old at this point here as we speak on August 1st. Um, Broadly speaking, especially from where you sit as chair of the Land Use Committee and, and taking in the city's major housing crises, which, of course, span everything from homelessness to affordable housing to just the broader housing supply deficit to NYCHA. Um, uh, what, what were your main takeaways from the city budget, things you're especially happy about, maybe one or two things that you were disappointed by and you're you know going to come back fighting for more in the future? Yeah. You know, this budget, um, I would say, is a, this year was more of a, a unique budget compared to the last couple of budgets uh, that we've had, um, you know, um, given this um, post-COVID, um, you know, what what was so different, um, I believe, in this budget and what was so challenging uh, was um, the asylum seekers um, being, uh, you know, having to allocate or, or set aside funding uh, to ensure that we're properly caring uh, for the asylum seekers that are, you know, are seeking help here uh, in the city of New York. Uh, um, and so, you know, you, you, co you combine that uh, with their, you know, uh, talks of deficit um, priorities, you know, um, and I know that the uh, Mayor Eric Adams, uh, this is the second, um, this is the second budget, but, you know, it's still a new administration. Uh, we, you know, we have, kind of fair, uh, kind of a, a, a new council. And so, you know, everyone has their own priorities. And ultimately is how do we balance out those priorities to put together a fair budget for New Yorkers? Um, and, and that's what we did. You know, we passed a, a budget of $107 uh, billion dollars, uh, this year. Um, you know, there were, um, there were some challenges, I, I would say, uh, getting to a yes, uh, but uh, we got to a yes. And, 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 I'm, and, I'm, and I'm happy that, that we got to a yes on this budget on time. And on housing specifically, there were some increased investments in uh, housing. Uh, according to the council press release about the budget, the budget secures record funding for affordable housing on the capital side, $4 billion in capital funding, uh, which includes $2.5 billion for the Department of Housing Preservation and Development, otherwise known as HPD, and $1.5 billion for NYCHA public housing. Um, there are some questions about whether that funding will continue in, in years beyond this fiscal year, but that was a pretty significant push by the council to increase that investment. Um, how do you feel about that? And what are the outstanding questions in your mind about that budget allocation? Because from people I've spoken with and where I sit, you know, there's real questions about whether both HPD and NYCHA will be able to really use that funding in this fiscal year, given challenges at both those places, they're different challenges, uh, use those and use those funding, that funding effectively. Um, how are you thinking about that increased allocation? Again, record sum, according to the council, uh, and and needed for housing development, preservation of affordable housing by HPD, and of course at NYCHA, especially given its many, many, many billion dollars in backlog to get to a state of good repair. Um, how are you feeling about that funding allocation and what are the outstanding questions in your mind about, about making sure that it's used and used well? Well, you know, when the speaker gave her state of the city address, uh, she made housing one of her top priorities, um, ensuring, number one, uh, that we get city FEPS. Uh, well, we do the housing and tenant assistance programs, which include city FEPS, partnership and preservations, 
emergency housing vouchers, um, which I think we allocated about $300 million there. There, um, you know, and I was extremely excited about the the as you mentioned, the four billion dollars in capital, um, and that that we, that was allocated uh, to to HPD. Um, you know, one of the challenges that we have in the city of New York is building housing, affordable housing, um, true affordable housing for New Yorkers, and um, the need the need is there, and um, we need HPD to catch up with that need, and to build housing at an expedited rate so that we can address our housing crisis um, in the city of New York. Um, you know, one of the challenges that I think that HPD has is that in the council, when we approve projects or we rezone projects, uh, the developer has to sit there uh, and wait for HPD uh, to close on these projects. Um, and at the moment, HPD has a big backlog um, in terms of closing projects. So, uh, you know, you have, um, you have developers that got projects approved um, and are waiting two, three, four years, five years, some of them, uh, for HPD to actually close on their projects. And what's challenging when that happens is uh, that um, they utilize the AMI from the year that that project was approved. I mean, I'm sorry that that project was closed on. Mm -hmm. So if you um, if, if a project in 2018 is approved at the council with the AMI structure, the AMI rents of 2018, and HPD closes in 2022, well, that AMI that they're using is a 2022 AMI, which means that the rents are much higher. And so that's something that um, that's challenging. That I know that we're, we're keeping a close eye on. And many times you don't we don't understand why. Uh, HPD um, has not closed on projects. You know, they close on projects twice a year, um, in June and in December. And many times they have the developers and the council members um, on edge waiting to see if their projects are going to be um, uh, closed. Um, that's why I um, I introduced the bill, uh, which would uh, intro 362, which would uh, which is being heard in September which would require HPD um, every uh, twice a year, every six months, every June and in December, when they close on projects, uh, to provide on their website a list of projects that were approved, how much funding they're going to get for that project, um, and the date that they were closed. on. And for those projects that were not approved that are and are waiting on a pipeline, as to why those give an explanation as to why those projects were not approved and provide a potential future date as to when they plan on um, uh, closing on those projects. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's extremely challenging. Yeah. That's, um, that's those, the, some, some uh, transparency and accountability measures there, uh, which is, you know, sometimes a lot of what the council can do. Um, obviously, and I've talked about this with other guests, there's challenges at, at HPD around some of these issues related to staffing and making sure there's the uh, individuals at uh, the housing department that uh, can move can move these deals through. That includes legal staff and, and others and question, you know, challenges around the city's many, many thousands of budgeted vacancies, which, again, is not. Uh, not really a budget issue per se. It's much more of a sort of hiring, retention, recruitment issue, a personnel issue um, that the city's really been wrestling with here, with with limited uh, limited improvement as we sit here in August, twenty twenty three. Any quick thoughts on that? Because it it is such a uh, such a challenging topic. Mayor Adams has made a few changes in hiring practices. Uh, he's had a lot of these hiring halls, these job fairs. Um, I don't know how successful those have been really, but um, you know, there's real questions around how hard it is to both retain people at city government jobs, especially non-union workers who would be a lot of these lawyers that are in uh, HPD and other places uh, because they have a lot more flexibility in the private sector now, higher pay, more work from home, uh, any any thoughts on the city adjusting that better, especially as you look at things like your HPD reporting and accountability bill that will be heard in September, as you mentioned? There's a hearing set for September 12th on that bill and some other matters that we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, you're spot on um, in terms of the uh, their hiring practices. So one of the challenges uh, that HPD has is retention, my opinion. 
Um, and uh, many HPD employees have left to the private field to make two or three times more uh, than what HPD was actually paying them. Um, and conversation that I've had with Commissioner Carrion um, and my other colleagues is how do we work, help HPD to increase the salaries of these employees so that they can they can retain them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and, and it's, it's been challenging. It's been challenging for Commissioner Carrion and, and HPD in terms of hiring and, 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 and paying good paying competitive salaries uh, compared to the private sector. Yeah. We'll have, uh, HPD commissioner Adolfo Carrion on the podcast in the coming months. Uh, we'll definitely, we'll definitely get him on and talk about that and a lot more here. Before we get into a lot more on housing and land use, I just wanted to take a minute. You um, were part of those celebrating the elevation of the new NYPD commissioner, the new police commissioner, uh, Eddie Caban, who, uh, like you, is a a Puerto Rican son of the Bronx. What does his elevation to NYPD commissioner uh, mean to you? And uh, as much as as much as sort of the symbolism is important, uh, what how do you hope that translates into how he runs the department, uh, public safety, community relations? What does it mean to you to see his elevation, and what are your hopes for him uh, as leading the NYPD here in the in the coming years and months? You know, it was extremely humbling for me uh, to physically be present when history was made, as you know, the first Latino uh, to run the biggest um, police force in, in, in the nation. Um, you know, uh, Commissioner Caban, um, I've known him in his time as first deputy commissioner, uh, accessible, uh, someone who's a straight shooter, uh, and someone who has over three, three decades of experience, um, you know, working in NYPD. Um, I believe his father was also a detective uh, in the NYPD, I believe in the Transit Bureau. Um, and so I... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely, as a Latino, as a proud Puerto Rican, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely thankful to Eric, uh, to Mayor Eric Adams for this appointment. Um, but, you know, Commissioner Caban has his has playful. You know, we're, we're dealing with uh, asylum seekers. Uh, we're dealing with certain parts of the city where crime is increasing. Uh, gun violence is a major issue, like communities such as mines. Uh, where, you know, we're seeing you find new violence, um, with, especially with gun violence in our communities. You know, in this past year, um, I've had three adolescents uh, killed, uh, two of them as um, just bystanders, uh, an 11-year-old going with her aunt to the nail salon. Um, she was shot by a stray bullet. A 15-year-old walking, coming out of school, going home, shot by a stray bullet. And a 14-year-old, uh, who was who came out of the PAL on Longwood Avenue, shot and killed right in front of the PAL. Um, and that's just three examples of many examples that are happening uh, throughout the city of New York. Um, you know, uh, Commissioner Caban um, has my full support. I know many of my colleagues are going to support him. Um, and he has to balance it out. You know, how do you address crime um, without being overzealous uh, and over-policing our communities? Um, and I think that he's up for the challenge and, and, he, and, and, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm looking forward to working with him. Is there a way in which you see the police department run under mayor Adams, obviously longtime member of the NYPD himself. This is part of how he, uh, was elected messaging to New Yorkers during a, a time of increased crime that, that overlapped with, of course, the COVID pandemic and, lots of upheaval and unemployment and all sorts of change and and disruptions, Um, how he won the election. Also promising, of course, to balance his record on public safety with uh, increased uh, police accountability and community relations. And he's worked on on, uh, some of that as as mayor. Is there a way that you're seeing the police department led differently under this mayor? Any way you can capture for people since you obviously know the department so well? have been an elected official now for uh, seven years. Uh, we're with the community board before that, the precinct council before that. Um, is there a way that the police department's being run differently under this mayor that you can capture for people? Yeah, I mean, look, I, uh, Mayor Eric Adams, you know, he brings not the different type of knowledge as a former captain in the NYPD. Um, and what I've seen him do, you know, he, he created a new position, uh, a deputy mayor position, 
uh, for uh, for public safety, which he brought in um, Deputy Mayor Banks in, which also comes in with uh, the experience of the ins and outs of how this uh, NYPD is run. Um, and, um, you know, what 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 um, Mayor Eric Adams has done, he has allocated funding for violence interrupters to, to, to help. NYPD to go into these communities where violent violence is really plaguing our communities and destroying our communities. Um, but I also think that one of the challenges that NYPD has uh, is, and I'm going to say this again, is some of the changes uh, that they did uh, in the state laws uh, where, you know, bail reform laws. Um, and I know that they kind of updated them recently, but still, you know, the issue that we're having with youth and youth crime, where we're, I feel that there's a revolving door when you get an adolescent, someone who's under the age of 18, you know, 14, 15, 16 year olds who are cut, caught with guns um, and they go in and they're released. And then they go back and they commit the same crime. I mean, that it's extremely challenging for an agency uh, to to fight crime when you know your your, your court system at the moment uh, for a certain population is set up where uh, these individuals who are committing these crimes are caught and they're right back out in the street a few days later. Um, so it's, it's I think it's an extremely challenging uh, for this administration uh, to to address. Um, uh, to address crime with this particular population. And what's, um, your, what's your answer on that? Is it is it is it return to h- how things were before the raise the age law, where teenagers could often more often be prosecuted as adults for things like gun possession? Is it uh, you know more use of of sort of uh, different security level juvenile detention? It, it, do you have a an answer on that? Is it what look, you I, I have a. I have a juvenile detention center in my district, right? It's called the Horizon Detention mm-hmm. Center. Um, when they did the uh, raise the age, um, I was a big supporter of it because I didn't, I don't, I did not believe that a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old uh, should be held in Rikers, you know, with with grown adults. Should they commit a crime, and they should, you know, and and then they're holding them there, and so they go through their their due process in the court system. But I also think that um, those individuals who have multiple gun uh, charges um, uh, in, in in terms of robberies or shootings, um, those uh, those actions, those crimes should be held more seriously than if an adolescent gets caught, you know, in a fight or shoplifting or even you know things of that nature. And and I think that those are the conversations that we in the city and the state need to have uh, as to how do we uh, hold those adolescents. Uh, that are committed, that are constantly committing these same violent crimes, how do we hold them more accountable? Um, and at the moment, in my opinion, we need to do better. Mm-hmm. And of course, the mayor uh, and his administration, along with the governor and attorney general, uh, just released uh, at the beginning of this week when we're talking here, uh, the new blueprint for community safety that came out of the Gun Violence Prevention Task Force formed in 2022. It targets certain precincts, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, including uh, some that overlap with your council district um, for sort of a a holistic approach to community safety, uh, prevention of gun violence. There's obviously ongoing policing to try to catch people that perpetrate gun violence. Um, uh, Any any quick thoughts on sort of that plan and how it targets the most uh, gun violence prone precincts in the city? I mean, they. I think that they 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 have the right idea. How do we we target communities that are suffering from uh, from uh, gun violence? Um, you know, uh, one of the ideas that I came up with with my team uh, was uh, uh, creating a a gun buyback uh, program uh, where every borough must have one once a month uh, to, uh, uh, to 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 see if we can get these guns off the streets. Um, that's not going to resolve the gun violence problem that we have in our city. I understand that. Uh, but if we get one gun in one particular month off the street, I mean, we're saving lives. Um, so um, but, you know, the funding was allocated. Um, you know, the, the, the funding will be distributed to these organizations and we just have to wait and see uh, their approach and how they're going to help address uh, this. Uh, what I call it. Gun violence is a true pandemic in our communities, um, and hopefully, you know, we we can all work together uh, to get these guns off our streets. 
and the hundred folks can check out the plan that the the task force released. I won't go into all the details now, but like I said, it you know it's it uh, relates a lot to taking a more holistic approach. There's uh, hundreds of millions of dollars that are allocated as part of it. Uh, some of it's already been put into city and state budgets, but now there's sort of more planning behind it. And it goes to all sorts of things that relate to public safety, like housing, like job programs, uh, police community relations, and, and, and much more. Um, all right. So we, we could we could talk about that for uh, an hour on its own. But let's come back to how to the issue of housing. Say a little bit about how you approach chairing this land use committee that you've now been chairing for uh, since since early 2018, when the at the time that new council class came in, you had already been in the council, but it was a new council class, new speaker, Corey Johnson, names you land use chair. How have you approached that role? Uh, the city council typically has a culture of what's called member deference, where there's specific projects in specific council members' districts, and mostly that council member sort of takes the lead on approving those projects, negotiating those projects, disapproving those projects. Uh, they can be everything from a spot rezoning of a plot of land that needs council approval for a change, or it could be a neighborhood rezoning. And then there's there's other things that fit under this umbrella as well. How have you approached chairing the land use committee and how has this notion of member deference fit into your lens and your perspective on chairing the committee? Yeah. Look, in the time that I've been land use chair, my goal uh, has always been how do I get that local member to a yes? And how do we ensure that that particular project and that particular uh, in that in that particular district, in that community, uh, that the community benefit uh, from that project? Um, and and it's not a one size fits all. You know, um, there are certain communities uh, where, um, you know, we, we need to focus on low income, um, you know, deep, deeper affordability. Um, there are other communities where the member uh, wants to focus on a mixed income. Um, you know, in the time that I've been in the council for seven years, I approved in my district alone a uh, little over 8,000 units of 100% affordable housing. Um, you know, I, I also believe in the mixed income model. You know, where you have to set aside um, uh, housing for uh, the homeless that are ready for independent living, um, set aside uh, housing for low income families. Uh, but also we cannot forget about work, our working families. You know, uh, you may have um, you may have a, a family where, uh, you know, mom is a teacher making 70, you know, 50, 60, 70 thousand dollars a year. You may have her husband or her partner or someone in the family uh, that lives with them is, you know, making making, you know, uh, another 60, 70 thousand dollars a year. You know, you put that income together. They may be bringing in uh, close to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars together, but they want to remain in their communities. And so, you know, that has been um, our approach. Um in this council, we do believe in member deference, um, but as the speaker has made it clear, members don't not have veto power. You know, uh, when a member wants to, uh, you know, disapprove of a project, well, they need to come to the body and explain why this project is not a good fit for their immediate community. Um, and I think that we've been successful at that. Um, you know, um, in some of the projects that have been challenging that I can bring up uh, recently. Um, was the project in Councilman Marjorie Velasco's district, um, you know, where, you know, um, we, we approved the project in which was extremely challenging for her because the community did not want that project. Um, you know, uh, then you look at uh, Councilmember Julie Wan. It's a massive project, Innovative Queens, you know, mm -hmm. building over 2,000 units uh, of housing. Um, and so it, it all depends, the approach that we've used, it, it all depends on that community uh, and the needs of that immediate community um, and, and and collectively coming uh, to a yes. There's also an interesting perspective that it seems like you have where it's about the community, but also taking into consideration sort of the citywide need, right? And this lack of uh, relative lack of housing development that's happened across the city. You mentioned a couple of places uh, you know, you could look at every council district and there's wide varieties of how much housing has been built over, let's say, the last decade or dozen years, uh, you know, or so since since 2010. And the New York Housing Conference has tracked all this 
as you're well aware. Um, and, and your district, again, as you mentioned, has been welcoming and building thousands and thousands of new units of housing, deeply affordable. Um, many districts have been welcoming almost no housing. And that was part of what was at play in Councilmember Velasquez's district in this push to say, hey, every neighborhood, every community should be doing its share to help the city grow, to find housing and affordable housing for people. How is that how has that shifted, if at all, in your mind over these last three, four, five years? From what I can tell, at least over the last one, two, three years, there's been a bit of a shift of a recognition among more and more city council members and other officials that every everywhere across the city needs to be open to more housing growth. Sometimes, as you said, it's more deeply affordable. Sometimes it's more mixed income. And sometimes even in some cases, it's just, hey, let, let more market rate housing be built so that there's just more housing supply on the market. How has that mindset shifted from your vantage point in the city council over these last few years? I mean, we've seen we we've seen the numbers when we're looking at DHS, right? Our homeless population. I think that we're over over the 70,000 um, mark in terms of homeless individuals uh, that are staying in, um, in, in a homeless shelter. And so. We utilize that data. We utilize, we utilize uh, the data from the housing conference. I gave us a list of all 51 members and, you know, they prioritize or they listed us in, in terms of who's done their part and who has done very little. And we we utilize that data um, to help members get to a good place. Um, for example, um, the data that was uh, provided by the housing conference, we were able to get that to Councilmember Margie Velasquez to give a, to give her a, uh, um, a good uh, talking point to go back to her community and say, hey, we are in a housing crisis and out of all 51 members, we're probably, we're dead last. You know, I think mm-hmm. uh, Councilmember Borelli in Staten Island had built more housing than that community uh, has built. And so, um, you know, th- that that data is helping us uh, get to a yes. Um, I, and I also have to give a big uh, kudos to um, to my speaker, Adrian Adams. You know, after um, the, the um, in um, that project in uh, Christian Jordan's district. Um, 145. That, mm-hmm. Yes, 145, when the developer pulled that project. Right. And I know that there was opposition, um, you know, from the from the council member um, when he pulled that project and we saw the amount of housing that we lost the opportunity. um, The speaker said no more. You know, Mm -hmm. she sat with the members. She says we're not going to be killing projects. We are in a housing crisis. We have to get to a yes. Uh, Yes, we have to negotiate. Um, and we're going to negotiate and, and make sure that we get the best deal possible. We get our community benefits in our communities. Um, but we have to get to a yes because we have to build in this city. Um, and so I, I have to credit uh, my speaker uh, for that leadership. And actually, it made life a little much easier for this land use chair here mm-hmm. where I can go, mm-hmm. where I can go to the members and say, hey, you know, the speaker has given us direct orders, you know, and and we need to get to a good place. Let's let me help you uh, negotiate. And, you know, what I've done in my capacity as land use chair is like I, I sit with members. I visit their districts. I walk around. I try to use my examples of, of what's worked for me, uh, what has not worked for me. Um, uh, things that I, decisions that I've made in the past that I say, you know what, maybe let's do it a little differently. Mm-hmm. And I try to use my experience um, uh, to, to help my colleagues uh, negotiate these projects. Is that things like, hey, w- let's look at this uh, surrounding area of this project. What about negotiating for, uh, you know, funding for a new community space here? Or what, what, what are a couple specific examples of what those, what those uh, discussions might be like? Is it about density of a project? Is it about the specifics? Is it about the surrounding neighborhood, the community benefits agreement? What, what do you get into there? Look, I'll give you an example. Um, Council member Crystal Hudson, one of the projects that she had, I believe, was on Atlantic Avenue um, as a rezoning. And um, it was challenging for her because uh, the community, they, they, the density was a little too, too, too big, too high for them. Um, and so and, 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 and to give credit to Council member Hudson, she wanted to get to a yes. 
uh, something that one of the challenges that they had on Atlantic Avenue uh, is the roads. They were extremely dangerous. You know, you couldn't cross from one side to the other without the risk of getting hit by by a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so she got a commitment from the administration to kind of do a a study or neighborhood rezoning there to kind of fix that whole thoroughway there on Atlantic Avenue. Um, and so she went back to her community, presented this, um, and she got support for it. I mean, and so, you know, that's an example for, you know, how, uh, why council member Crystal Hudson got to a good place on her project. Um, you know, you may have other members where they don't have any green space. Uh, they may have empty lots. They want gardens, you know, and so they asked the administration to, to, to put in some funding through that appropriate agency, mostly the parks department, uh, so that you can give them, you know, um, provide that need that that community needs. Uh, you have some other council members who, um, if there's a project adjacent to a school and the school needs a new auditorium or, you know, needs a new HVAC system, uh, well, they, they negotiate, say, hey, I want to be supportive, but these are the needs, uh, or that school may need a new playground. Um, and so, it's you know right. it's so important. sometimes there's negotiation with a private developer happening about a rezoning, but the city administration also gets roped in as part of a, a grand bargain, so to speak, in part because the mayoral administration has to sort of take a both community by community lens, but also the citywide lens to say, okay, what resources can we try to put in here to get to a yes on this deal that will help this community, but also help our citywide goals? Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 exactly it. You know, um, if I, an example, when Mayor de Blasio did these those rezonings, those neighborhood rezonings, you know, um, there were millions and millions of capital dollars that were part of the negotiations and part of those rezonings, uh, such as the Jerome Avenue rezoning. And so um, when we're talking about community benefits, you know, um, and I sit down with my colleagues, uh, those are the conversations that we have. Well, you're going to build housing here but what are your needs of that immediate community so that we can incorporate them as part of the negotiations of this project? So now things like a neighborhood rezoning, I think, you know, in part, um, some of that makes a lot more sense to me, right? You're thinking about sort of recreating an entire stretch of a community. Obviously neighborhood community rezonings can take lots of different shapes and sizes. They can be, they can be smaller, they can be larger, they can be sort of, uh, uh, like a, a, along a narrower thoroughfare, or they could be many, many, many blocks wide uh, and so forth. Um, in terms of, though, the ways in which you help get involved in these specific negotiations over uh, rezonings of specific projects, again, they can be medium size, like the one uh, 45 in Harlem that didn't go through. They can be the much bigger scale, like the Innovation Queens project. They can be much smaller than than both of those. Um, do you ever get frustrated by how much, you know, sort of how much wrangling there is over each uh, proposed change? Is it are we doing it wrong? You know, there's a lot of a lot of people who look at, you know, these various negotiations and how. There's so much that goes into it over each and every sort of deal that needs to get done. It, it, does that approach need rethinking? I mean, I know you're so in it as land use chair that you're sort of just going from negotiation to negotiation. But do you ever sort of sit back and say, I don't know if this is the best way to do it for the city writ large? The problem is, you know, every, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it, this one size fits all approach does not work in every community. You know, the needs that I may have in the South Bronx on, on how to build may not be uh, the same needs that, you know, my colleague in Riverdale may have as well. And so that's why, you know, I, I, I think that it's important that every project uh, that comes through uh, that needs to be need, uh, through land use must be vetted with that immediate member. But something that I, you know, as a former district manager, and, and this is what has helped me getting to a yes uh, with, you know, very little controversy in some of my projects uh, has been involving the community. You know, what I tell developers before they, they, they come in and they, they certify their project through city, through city planning, go to your local community board, present what your plan, what you think you would like to build and get input from them from the very beginning. Meaning, uh, so once they go and they certify that project and the clock starts, 
there may be very little opposition from the community, which will make the negotiation, that process, as it goes through community board, borough president, city planning, and then back to the council. Um, during that eight to 12 month process that we're negotiating, we'll make it much easier uh, so that, you know, where we can get, you know, our, our, our needs met and get to a yes on this project. Mm-hmm. Is there also room for going the other way, which is something we've seen um, happen a little bit in uh, Manhattan Community Board? We've seen it from Borough President Mark Levine in Manhattan. Um, Borough President Reynoso in Brooklyn is working on a comprehensive plan for Brooklyn. We haven't we haven't seen we saw a draft plan, but we haven't seen the full details of that yet. But Borough President Levine in Manhattan came out with a housing plan where he said, Here's dozens of you know spots to rezone. Here's neighborhood you know stretches of neighborhoods to rezone. We have community boards, uh, a little bit saying, "Hey, we're looking at our community and saying here's where we would like to see more housing." Is there also room in your mind for that type of approach where communities should be having those conversations and saying, "Let's not wait for developers or even the city government to come to us. Let's talk about what." good growth in our community would look like, or is that just wishful thinking? No, no, absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the right approach, you know, um, uh, where you're, you're giving, I think what, what lacks here is giving these community boards, the resources, um, funding resources to have staffing available to put these reports together. Um, you know, uh, you know, who, 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 but a someone that lives in in that community and works in that community, you know, sees an empty lot all the time, sees the illegal dumping, you know, sees what's being built around. Well, they may have recommendations as to how we can, how we can, um, how can improve that immediate community and we can build. And so, you know, that that approach to me is 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 an excellent approach and something that I, that that I welcome. Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of at the heart of what the speaker wants to do with her fair housing plan that the bill for which will also be heard at that September city council hearing of the committee on housing and buildings that you mentioned where your HPD bill will be heard. There will be a hearing on September 12th. It's scheduled now. The city council schedule changes regularly. So folks should always check to see if the hearing is still going to be on September 12th. Um, but uh, the speaker has a bill that really is about sort of pushing towards more housing all over the city. Uh, production targets by community, uh, a framework for goals and strategies to produce more housing, especially in high opportunity community districts, as as it's called in the council uh, listing. Um, what, are, what, what do you think about that? And what are your hopes for that? I mean, obviously, we're already here in August 2023. Things move slowly in, in city government often. Um, but what are your hopes for that? And this makes me think, of course, about the governor's housing plan, her housing compact that didn't get passed through the legislature, which had in it requirements for growth. This bill from the speaker, as far as I know, is about planning and assessment um, and reports, but doesn't have requirements or the idea of sort of overrides if there's community opposition or, or communities are not doing their part. What are your hopes for that? And do you think that there's, do you think there's real promise in getting wealthier communities in the city to really consider uh, more housing development without sort of much more of a push, whether it's coming from the state government or the city government, what's your perspective on that? You know, I know mayor Adams, when he was running for office, he, he spoke a lot, and I think he wrote even an op-ed in Cranes when he was running about upzoning in wealthier and whiter areas of the city to bring more mixed-income housing all over the city, especially in those higher-resourced, higher-income areas. He hasn't hasn't followed through on that as mayor yet. We'll see what he does. Um, but what are your thoughts on sort of the Speaker's Fair Housing Framework Bill that will also be heard in September and the idea of how to really sort of get more mixed-income housing all over the city, especially in wealthier areas. I mean, I, I I'm excited about that approach. I'm looking forward to that hearing. I mean, uh, not not all communities are doing their fair share, um, and you know, you have communities who are not interested in any of these types of reports because it will uh, expose the fact 
that their communities are not doing their part in addressing uh, this uh, this housing crisis. Um, and, look, and at the end of the day, uh, my district, as I mentioned, has built, I've approved over 8,000 units. The South Bronx cannot build all the affordable housing for the city of New York. Every community has to do their part. And I think uh, what the, um, the speaker is doing is, is providing more, more teeth uh, to or, or, uh, allowing uh, local communities uh, and the community boards and also, you know, asking city agencies to really dig in, dig in to vacant lots or areas where there has been very little uh, housing being built. Um, and that's not to say that housing in my community is going to stop. You know, we're going to continue to build here in the South Bronx. Uh, but we need to we need to ensure that these communities are doing their part. And, you know, we have to put a report together, just like the housing conference has done and provide that to, 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 to New Yorkers, just like the housing conference has done, which we are using as a tool uh, to build more housing in communities that are not building housing. Do neighborhood rezonings need to be more of a of a focused strategy, more of a tool for the mayoral administration, the Department of City Planning and local council members and borough presidents? Should there be more of a focus on neighborhood rezonings? You have gone through a process of approving one significant one, of uh, disapproving another one that was proposed uh, in your district. And and obviously, as land use chair, you've been involved in others uh, significantly as well over the course of these number of years. Should that be more of a tool in the toolkit because that takes in a broader swath of area to rezone, in most cases, upzone for more housing growth? You can also do, as we discussed, a variety of other community improvement initiatives. Those are painstaking. They're very challenging. But you've seen in your time in the council quite a few go through uh, during the de Blasio administration, uh, including in those final months, the Gowanus rezoning, the Soho rezoning in those wealthier areas of the city. Whereas prior to that, most of the rezonings that happened under Blasio were in lower income communities of color, um, but also areas that could stand for more housing growth that were feeling pressures of displacement and gentrification and more housing of a variety of types can help ease that. Um, but, but should those be more part of the toolkit here? Is there something that you think the Adams administration should take a closer look at trying to pursue more of those? Because they've been pretty quiet on that front so far. I think neighborhood rezonings were were challenging. And I can talk about my experience on the Southern Boulevard rezoning. You know, we went through that process for about two years, uh, city planning. Uh, they, they had their community meetings. And, you know, one of the reasons why I just felt that it was um, unnecessary uh, for me to, you know, rezone over, you know, close to 113 uh, blocks uh, was a big chunk of those empty lots that they wanted to build were private owned land. They were not city land. Um, and, and therefore, you know, we were, in my opinion, just giving a blank check to the property owner rezoning his land and saying, all right, we're, we're your, your, your land is an R1, um, you know, and so we're going to change it to an R8 where you can build 19 story buildings. And all you have to do is give me MIH, you know, which is, it depends on, you know, which one you're choosing, um, you know, mandatory inclusionary, mandatory inclusionary yeah. housing, which, which, which is only 25% of affordable housing. Um, you know, that, that was unacceptable for me, you know, because I cannot control, I, I was not, I was just going to hand over the keys uh, to a developer and, and, and hope that they were going to do a uh, right by, by my community. And in reality, many of these property owners have purchased these lands for years and are kind of like warehousing them, hoping that the city will come and rezone them, which, you know, a rezoning can, can, can run you a good amount of money, close to a million dollars, where the city's doing this for free. Um, and then you turn around and the fear for me was uh, that these property owners were just going to sell, sell their land. Um, and I could not, I, I felt uncomfortable uh, with that. Um, my approach of, you know, dealing with rezonings individually uh, made me more comfortable in terms of negotiating those projects. And so in terms of the Adams administration, mm -hmm. um, I mean, yeah, I think that there needs to be more of an aggressive approach as to how you're looking at city owned lands and how you are putting up, putting out RFPs more aggressively 
uh, so that we can approve these projects and build. But not neighborhood rezonings. I, it, 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 you know, the member may, may want it. I know that uh, council member Lander, he, he wanted a neighborhood rezoning. And I think he did really well. I think one of, uh, there was a, one of the biggest community benefits that he got there is one of his, uh, his NYCHA developments. Uh, that that was That's in the that Guanus area. Rezoning, yeah. yeah, 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 and 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 you know, Brad, and then and to give credit to uh, to then Councilmember Brad Lander, now Controller Brad Lander, mm-hmm. uh, he you know he he recognized that he represented a very wealthy community, and that his community too needed to do their fair share on building housing, and you know he he showed true leadership there in, in that mm-hmm. neighborhood rezoning. Right, and, and and there were other council members um, who you know either open to rezonings in their areas. The speaker at the time, Melissa Marco Verito in East Harlem. And, you know, she worked obviously very closely with the de Blasio administration on that rezoning. And then a number Idanis of others. Rodriguez as well, and then his rezoning. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a massive rezoning. He, yeah. he received a lot of resistance from the community. But, but I un- think- unsurprisingly, that sh- your perspective is it's really got to come more from the council member than the mayoral administration sort of trying to trying to identify those areas and, and push for broader swaths of, of rezoning. And, and yeah, in my opinion, it, it, the, the, the administration should approach the, the, the local member. Um, and, but the member in order for this rezoning or neighborhood rezoning to be successful, in my opinion, the member has to be open uh, to it. And meaning there's going to be major pushback from community members, right. Or organizations uh, uh, who are going to feel that, you know, they're pushing gentrification in communities. And so that member has to understand that, you know, during that two year process of negotiating that project, you're going to be under immense pressure uh, from all over uh, uh, residents from your community to ensure that you get it right. And so not, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I've talked about this with other housing focused guests, you know, you also have the challenge where, whether it's a spot rezoning or a neighborhood rezoning, you get, you get local opposition, people who either have very real sort of fears of, of uh, displacement, gentrification pressures, things like that, or people who are just sort of not in my backyard folks, NIMBY folks. And you get a lot of those voices, whereas most of the people probably who will benefit from the new housing don't even know they'll benefit from the new housing, right? They, they can't really, you know, in most cases, they're not going to make their voices heard in support of a project because who knows who's going to live in the new buildings, right? And, and you know, you have some ways in which community members know they might have a shot and, and there's different, you know, ways in, in uh, that, that those projects will clearly benefit local community members. But part of the challenge there is the who you're hearing the voices from. Uh, but but on that front, let me ask you, there is also, you know, there is also this issue that you're getting at with the Southern Boulevard rezoning that, as you noted, you, you wound up opposing a few years back, which is if a community is already feeling lots of gentrification and displacement pressures, bringing in new housing that would include at least the 20, 25% of units as affordable units under mandatory inclusionary housing, doesn't that at least help in some way? Isn't isn't that still to the benefit of the local community that is starting to feel those pressures? As you know, your your district in the Bronx, other Bronx districts that hadn't seen a lot of you know interest from people that has skyrocketed over the last number of years as people have been pushed out of Manhattan and then they're looking into the Bronx and other places. Um, does, have you have you rethought that at all? Have you looked at that at all to say, you know what, even if we bring in some of this mixed income housing, some of it at least helps take the pressure off? Uh, you know, what, what makes my community so uh, appealing is my district is extremely transit rich, right? We have the Metro North coming in. You have, uh, you know, you have the 205 line, you have the 6 line. I mean, you could get to the city in 15 and 20 minutes. And um, and so I think that 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 that's communities such as mine for neighborhood rezoning. I think that that's really what uh, what why the administration uh, was pushing. Um, but I think that the key difference here is that in the time that I've been in a council, I've been successful at approving eight thousand units at one hundred percent affordable housing. You know, and my community is doing its fair share and it's working. 
And so, you know, in terms of changing that approach, I, I no, I did not want to change that approach. I think that I'm doing my 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 community uh, council district 17 is it's doing what they need to do, which is building for residents in their immediate community. Look, back in the 80s, 70s, and 80s, when the Bronx was burning, no one wanted to know anything about the South Bronx. No one wanted to live here, and you have residents who who stood here, who raised their family here, such like my family, and 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 they and and their children are going to school. They're getting jobs, and they want to remain in their communities. And we want to ensure that they remain here, and that the that, that the housing that we're building is truly affordable for them. But my approach is also in building is mixed income, ensuring that we're building units for working families so that they can stay in in, in their communities here in the South Bronx. Mm-hmm. A few more questions before we let you go. Really appreciate all the time, City Council Member Rafael Salamanca, Bronx Democrat, who. Uh, chairs the city council's land use committee and is very involved as you're hearing here in lots of negotiations over specific land use rule changes zoning changes for specific plots of land for neighborhoods and then uh citywide zoning amendments and actually the adams administration speaking of what they uh, aren't doing what they are doing is putting forward three different citywide zoning text amendments the first one that's moving through has to do with uh, car- reducing carbon emissions and making the city more green friendly. The second one relates to economic development. It would clear the way for uh, the development of new casinos, which are in the offering for the city and a, and a whole bunch of other things. That's just one top line of that one. And then the third one that's coming through, which has only been previewed a little bit, but we're supposed to see the details of early in 2024 is focused on housing. So there's big citywide zoning text amendments that will come through your committee, Councilmember Salamanca. Uh, as I said, they're in different stages because uh, you know they're coming through one at a time, which makes a lot of sense for people to review them, of course, and then for them to get negotiated and potentially pass through the council eventually. Um, on the, it's, it's called City of Yes uh, for Housing Opportunity, the one that's being developed around housing from the Department of City Planning Anything you're most looking at there, anything you're concerned about there, anything you're pushing for there, this is still in development, but the mayoral administration has released something of an outline of the key pieces that will be involved. But but relative to a lot of the conversation we've already been having here, this is taking a citywide approach to try to tweak things in different ways to sort of allow for a little bit more housing everywhere is the way they put it, not massive scale changes like can happen with a neighborhood rezoning that we've been talking about, but sort of taking a look at the underlying city zoning and updating it in a number of ways in a number of places. How are you thinking about that citywide zoning text amendment that the administration is cooking up? What are you most watching for there? Uh, And then I'll let you go after a couple of quick last questions. Yeah, I mean, look, the administration has has met with us briefly. You know, I don't want to touch too much because it, there's a there's been some back and forth um, as to what our ideas are. Uh, something that I am monitoring is the changing of the uses of of, of, of certain areas, um, and 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 so, like for example, uh, you may have a uh, you may have an issue where um, certain communities. Uh, for example, you may have a piece of property, some type of entertainment, and uh, you're not allowed to uh, to dance. The law does not allow you to dance, um, and, and because that that's not the appropriate use. Uh, so, you know, the city wants to, in terms of the economy, boost the economy and boost the business. You know, change that, uh, uh, change that that use uh, for that for that land. Um, in terms of the carbon emissions, I mean, you know, uh, we we are reviewing. Uh, that that policy, that text amendment, their recommendations, um, but we also, you know, want to ensure that we're bringing in, um, you know, property owners uh, because ultimately these changes may have a financial impact on their building and the changes that they may need to make uh, based on that on that text amendment. Um, and in terms of you know you know the eco- economic development, the casinos, uh, that's that's a big uh, hot topic item mm-hmm. at the moment. <laughs> Um, you know, waiting to see, you know, who gets that license, um, you know, in the city of New York uh, and, and and the process that it will take in terms of, you know, whether that local member will be supportive of that. Um, that that has been a, a hot topic item um, yeah. that 
my office has been dealing with in the last couple of months. Do you have do you have your preferences for where you want to see the casinos? There, there, there's but the potential really for two new casinos in the city. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that Aqueduct and Queens will be allowed to become a full scale casino and then there'll be one new one. But we don't know that. Any any preferences from your vantage point as to where you'd like to see these licenses go? No, no. Look, in my opinion, I think that Aqueduct and Empire City are going to get uh, a permanent because the they're, they're structure, they're there, they exist. You know, they just need that yeah. change of license. I think that they're going to get it, which leaves with one license uh, that's up in the air, you know. And so um, I, I'm going to uh, say that I cannot I have no preference as a land use chair. I'm just going to let the process play out. Um, and, you know, when a decision is made there. Uh, when when a selection is made as to who gets the, the gets the license, and we go through our process of land use, I'm going to ensure that uh, who, who whichever council member's district uh, that license will be, that I will work with them to ensure that they get the best uh, deal possible for their community in terms of community benefits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, last couple of quick things: the uh, the housing zoning text amendment that the administration is working on will clearly have something in it related to either reducing or eliminating parking minimums that come along with new housing in many parts of the city. Where are you on that? Often, often some of the parking requirements winds up coming at the expense of additional housing. Um, and that's part of the reason that people are opposed to parking minimums being required as part of new development. And people say, hey, developers can, can add parking as they'd like, but it shouldn't be required. Yeah, I think I think that that that's who is a very extremely hot topic conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I can tell you that that's something that's challenging for me in my district as I'm building, um, you know, when ZQA, when, the, when I'm sorry, when the, when the mayor, uh, um, when the mayor, uh, I, um, de Blasio, uh, um, we did a text amendment for MIH and ZQA, they uh, they eliminate they eliminated most of the parking requirements. Um, and as we saw in my community, as I saw projects being presented to community boards, um, especially in areas where there are high traffic areas. Um, there was a lot of pushback from my community about there not being any parking um, uh, requirements. You know, um, and, and my district is, is, is transit rich, but you know, there was a lot of pushback. And so I, I tried my best to work with the developers to get to a good place where I, I would get community support and, 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 get, and get the developer to where we need to. Um, but and then you also have other communities such as, you know, where Marjorie uh, Velasquez lives at or Eric Dinowitz or even Kevin Riley, you know, that are, you know, they're, they're, they're transit deserts um, and their, their constituents are, are using vehicles, cars to, to, to get around. And, and so, you know, removing that requirement to build housing in those communities is, is, is going to be challenging for them, you know, and I, and no, I, I don't, you know, it's, it, again, it's, it's, a, it's a, one approach does not fit all. So uh, it all depends on where they're building, um, depends on the amount of transit options that those communities have. Um, and, 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 and I think that once we figure that out, we know how to properly negotiate that project when we're talking about uh, providing parking, uh, for those uh, those constituents and those tenants in those buildings. All right. So we've talked a lot of policy and details of, of housing and land use here. Let me ask you one political question as I say goodbye, which I which I often do with guests when we've had a meaty substance policy question. One one political question uh, at the end here. There's a bit of uh, rumors about you potentially revisiting a run for Bronx Borough president in the next election in 2025. That would probably mean a primary challenge to sitting borough president Vanessa Gibson. Is that something that you're taking a look at? So right now I'm focused on my uh, general election in November. Um, and uh, I, um, I will, you know, after we're done with that, I will be uh, sitting with my team. Um, and, and then figuring out what our next uh, step would be. And so we'll, we'll probably, you know, be making a uh, making a comments on on that sometime in the new year. All right. Sounds like that's wide open for uh, for possibility there. Um, City Councilmember Rafael Salamanca, thank you very much for the time. Uh, Councilmember Salamanca, Bronx Democrat, chairs the Land Use Committee. We'll be watching 
on a variety of these uh, policy and land use issues. And of course, also that political conversation that we just barely touched on there at the end. But thank you very much for the time. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you inviting me, Ben. Thank you. Thank you.